That's Mark 11, verses 1 through 25, on page 847. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Just a tiny announcement. I'm going to do something a little bit different after the service this morning. So uh, questions are important to us here at Fountain of Life, and uh, we have a big, mysterious passage in front of us. So I'm going to stay in here after the service, and if you have any questions about this text or about the Christian life in general, I want to invite you to come in and just ask those questions. And all questions are welcome. Of course, you're asking me those questions, so the answer may be, I don't know. Um, But I will do my best, and we just, we want to have an environment where questions are welcome. And if you want to ask a question anonymously, my phone number will be on the slide, okay? So you can text it to me, you can ask your question anonymously, 
and, and that way you don't have to feel put on the spot or whatever. We'll try to deal with your question the best we can. So no pressure. If you have no interest in that, you don't need to come. But if you want to come, just any, any question from this text or the Christian life in general, feel free. We'll give that a shot afterwards. But let's pray. Ask for help. Heavenly Father, now we come to the high point of, just, of worship, Lord, to hear you speak. Um, your word has proven itself to us, Lord. This, this book is your inspired word. And interpreted correctly, we hear the very words of God to us and for us. So, Lord, we pray the Holy Spirit would be here with us richly. Help us, Lord. I need your help. Help me to teach this passage clearly and faithfully. And, Lord, I pray for each person here. Lord, you know his or her story, where each person is at in their relationship with you. I pray that you would meet with us. Where we are, you are able to do that. Open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts to hear what you have to say, to see Jesus and respond to him. In his name we pray, amen. Amen, yeah. Amen. He's filled with the spirit right there. So, so what does it mean to come to Jesus or to believe in Jesus? A lot of ways we can answer that, but of course you have to think of that question from the point of view of who is Jesus, right? Who he is should define how you respond to him. If he's just a good teacher, well, then you would take advice from him. Um, if he's mainly just a savior in the sense you can get kind of just forgiveness, well, maybe, maybe that's all you need is just believe and be forgiven. As we see from our text today, coming to Jesus or, or being a Christian, it, it may be more, but it's never less than coming to Jesus as your king. It may be more, but it's never less than coming to Jesus as your king. Now, absolutely, Jesus is the sweetest savior. We love that about him. He is the wisest teacher. We want to hear his words. And he is the most faithful friend. Amen. And he saves, teaches, and befriends as king. And it's worth clarifying because it is a popular thing to want Jesus as just a teacher but not quite a king. And you can imagine why. It's a popular thing to have him as a savior who forgives, but not a king who demands. We can see why that is alluring. Get some of the blessings and benefits of Jesus without his commands. You, you get some of the goodness of Jesus while saving the throne of your life for yourself. But here's where Jesus confronts us. This text confronts us. If you have not come to Jesus as your king, you haven't, you haven't truly come to Jesus at all. You've come to a, a self-invented Jesus, for, for this is who he is. He is the king. So what kind of king is he? We think of kings, and I don't know about you, I recoil. I don't like, I don't like most of the ideas of kings, and, and we know why. We know of the kings of the leaders of this world, right? We're aware 
corruption, tyranny, foolishness are the norm. I don't trust these people. Okay, can you trust Jesus? What kind of king is he? We're working through the gospel of Mark, and this morning we come to chapter 11, and here Jesus is entering the city of Jerusalem as the king. And it is fascinating to note, you realize we have about a third of the book left, and the last one-third of the book, chapters 11 to 16, it's basically about the last single week of Jesus' life. So think about how heavy-loaded this is on the back end. A third of the book is about one week of his life, and that's because it all leads up to this. The whole story leads up to this. And so this morning, I have chosen a larger passage this morning, but it all works together, and I think it's valuable to see how it fits together. This morning, we're looking at the incredible events of the first two days of this week. So there's, there's three main scenes, really, in what we're looking at. Number one, you get a very strange coronation, right? It's, it's kind of the story of a coronation of a king, but it's weird. It's not the way you'd normally do coronations. Strange coronation. Then you get the king heading to a surprising destination. He doesn't seem to be going where you would expect him to go. And then third, you get the king making a shocking proclamation, coronation, destination, proclamation. And each one of those, it's just not what you'd expect. It's strange. Clearly, Jesus is not the kind of king anyone expected. He defies everybody's expectations. So in these three scenes over two days, we get to learn a lot about the kind of king Jesus is. So two days, three scenes, four aspects of Jesus as king. That's what I want to work through with you this morning. Two days, three scenes, four aspects of Jesus as king. And then along the way, we are compelled to ask, and I hope each one of you will ask this, is Jesus my king? I hope you have honesty on that in yourself. And if he's not, I hope you say, why not? Should he be my king? And if he is, I hope you say, well, what should that look like for him to be my king? So here we go. First aspect of Jesus' king, verses 1 to 6. I hope you're following along in your Bibles. We're on page 847 in these chair Bibles. And you see the first aspect of Jesus' king in verses 1 to 6, just to imagine the situation, the drama is high. You know, massive crowds are gathering from all over the place to go to Jerusalem for Passover. Over a million people. Um, and there's this tense energy regarding Jesus because he's famous and he's polarizing. So the crowds are enamored with him just due to his person, his miracles, his teaching. The religious leaders... Political influencers, they hate him and they want him dead. It's very tense. But they don't know how to kill him because of all of his popularity. And, and everyone's wondering, is he the Christ? And if he is, how's he going to flex that? Because now's the time. He's, he, he might be the king and he's coming into his city. What is that going to look like? Is he going to harness his power, his popularity? Is he going to dethrone Herod? Is he going to overthrow the Roman occupation? How will the king come to his city? And so we see Jesus playing this out and just giving strange directions. 
you hear these directions? All right, here I am. I'm the king. I'm coming into my city. Here's what I want you to do. Two of you, I want you to walk into the village. You're going to find a colt that no one's ever ridden. You're going to untie that colt. And when the people in charge of that colt say, what are you doing with my colt? You just tell them the Lord wants it. And then you bring me that colt. Okay, you ready? This is so strange. Uh, we're not told a whole lot of details we'd like to know, but let's just imagine being the two disciples, whoever they are. They're not named because it's not important. They walk into the village, and you know, I'm walking with you, and you're like, there's a cult right there. What do we do now? I think you're supposed to untie it. I would feel sheepish, personally. Untying the colt, some dude walks out. What are you doing with, with my colt? And that's when you go, the Lord needs it. <laughs> and then he goes, oh, okay, sweet, take it. It worked. He brings this thing back to Jesus. Man, what is going on? Whether this is a straight-up miracle by Jesus or something he previously arranged, we don't really know. It doesn't really matter. But the first thing you need to see before we get into the meaning of that is Jesus is absolutely in control of this entire event. He's absolutely in control. He will be in control of this entire week. One man. Interrupting the institution of the temple, outraging the religious leaders, one man, he's in control. Even over his betrayal and his death, he is in control. The first thing you need to see is Jesus is the sovereign king. He's the sovereign king. He's in control. And you know, at first glance, it wouldn't even look like it. I don't... According to the Gospels, you can press me on this, you study it, I don't know. I think this is the first time Jesus has been on a donkey since Mary was pregnant with him riding to Bethlehem. Because he walks everywhere he goes. Because he doesn't have a lot of money. Doesn't look like the sovereign king. Doesn't have his own donkey. What kind of a king is this? And yet it's true, he's king and he's in control. Read the Gospels, they're all backloaded on the last week of Jesus' life, and each one of them will show you he's in control. He, he's not, he's not a, a well-meaning victim who accidentally, you know, got in too deep and was uh, oppressed by the brutal system of Rome. Oh, no. Jesus says in John, nobody takes my life from me. I give it up. He's in control. He's the sovereign king. I just want you to know, if you trust Jesus as your king, you can trust he will be sovereign and in control over your life as well. For your good. And just like this picture here, it won't always look like it or feel like it. But you can know your king is with you. He goes before you. He will bring you to himself. His word will come true for you, just like it came true in this story. First thing to see, the sovereign king. Second thing to see, well... Why would you ride into the city on a previously unridden donkey colt? 
I said this was a strange coronation. You can imagine Caesar or even Alexander the Great, right? He had his horse, Bucephalus. Did you know that? Uh, It's a big, steedly horse. And it makes sense, right? If you're a king and you're all that, what kind of, what do you want to ride into town on? Do you want one of those little scooters, you know? Or do you want big black SUVs or a tank? What are you going to ride into town on when you're the king? Jesus says, I'll take an unridden donkey colt, please. Why? What are you doing? Was obviously refers to a passage from the prophet Zechariah written 500 years before Jesus. Look at this, Zechariah 9, 9. It's a lot to take in, but look at it together. Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Number one, how are we supposed to feel? Rejoice greatly. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Behold, your king is coming to you. What's he like? He's righteous, finally a king, with character, integrity, mercy. Having salvation is he. What else is he like? He's humble and mounted on a donkey. What kind of a donkey? Well, a colt, of course. The foal of a donkey. Look at verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Well, now you see what Jesus is doing. He is acting this out on purpose. And he's saying to everyone, and they would know of this passage, that king God is going to bring, it's me. But did you see what kind of a king he is? Number one, you know, why does he want an unwritten, an unridden cult? No one's ever wrote it. Well, here's why. It's because he's the king, and only the king rides the king's ride. Did you see the scope of his reign? It's everywhere. So Jesus is clearly saying it. I am God's promised king who will reign over everything. That's his claim. But he's also such a different king. He's a king who comes in humility. Doesn't, just, doesn't this blow you away? When do we ever see humble kings? Humble kings. Now, for sure, read Revelation 19. When Jesus comes back the next time, he is on a big horse. But this time he comes in humility. And I think it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful. Jonathan Edwards, that old uh, Puritan preacher, one of my favorite sermons, he talks about the, the excellencies of Jesus Christ. And it's a sermon based on that vision in Revelation where Jesus is in one glance a lion and another glance a lamb. And he says, Edward says, the conjunction of these various excellencies in one person makes him all the more beautiful. If he's going to be a king of any worth, he's got to be strong enough to do something. But we're tired of strong, oppressive, tyrannical kings. If he's going to be a king I can trust, oh, he's got to be humble and accessible and caring and merciful. And then you look at Jesus, he's a lion. He's terrifying. 
He's powerful. He's going to judge the earth. His words will never fail. And he's a lamb. He's gentle. He's humble. He cares. And we've seen this in Jesus, haven't we? This diverse excellencies in one person. Humble and strong. Especially here. Humble. Approachable. Compassionate. He has time even for me. Even for you. He, he values the blind beggar. He touches the leper. He's on our level. And he's so humble and loving to the point where the salvation he brings is that he will go to a cross for you in your place. That's how loving and humble he is. And he brings peace. He brings you peace with God through his cross in your place. You can be forgiven. No condemnation. He brings you peace in your soul, knowing that all is well. You belong to him forever. There's no king like this. Who is it? He's the sovereign king. He's the promised king, and he's humble. Well, the, the crowd sort of gets this, but not really, right? Did you see that part? They start throwing their cloaks on the ground, kind of making a red carpet for Jesus on his colt. And culturally, that's what you do for kings. Uh, Second Kings, that's what they did for a guy named Jehu. You, you put your cloak on the ground, you say, you're the king. So, so they get this to a point. They, they see what he's doing. He's claiming to be king. Then they start singing Psalm 118. That's going to be a big deal for us next week. This would be normal on the way to go worship at the temple. You kind of responsibly sing these songs together. And Psalm 118, it talks about the Messiah coming, talks about going up to the temple to worship, and we're going to see Jesus fulfills the whole thing. Of course, the crowd only sorts of, sort of gets it. Um, they have in mind a political king. When they say, Hosanna, save us, they're most likely thinking, can you please uh, politically renew our nation? Can you get Rome out of here? Uh, they have a political king in mind, so, so they're off. They don't quite get it. But one thing is clear. It's clear to everybody. Jesus is claiming to be king. And for us reading Mark, we're seeing it. Jesus is God's promised king. That has massive implications, doesn't it? Massive implications. Is this true? I mean, for me, the, the, the anchor for that question is, I think, it's, I think it's historically true, Jesus rose from the dead. I think there's just loads of evidence for that. He rose from the dead. Well, if he rose from the dead, to me, that, that chains directly to, well, that means everything he said is true. If he predicts his death and resurrection, and he does that, I don't know what proof you need. That does it for me. That means everything he said is true. And Jesus is telling us right now, the one who died and rose from the dead, he's telling us right now, I'm God's promised king. That has enormous implications, if that is true. Can you feel some of them? That means God's goal for human history is that Jesus would be seen to be king and would reign explicitly as king. That means it is inescapable. So like one passage in Philippians says, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in the Greek, that word every means every, which includes yours. 
The Bible's telling you about a moment in your future, you know? It's not quite like that, but he's telling, the Bible's telling you about a moment in your future. Your knee will hit the floor in front of Jesus because this is God's king. So your choice in the matter, if this is true, is not, is my knee going to hit the floor? Your choice is, what's the nature of my knee hitting the floor? Is it joy because I love God's king? He's my king, and he saved me. Or is it terror because you lived a life rebelling against God's king? The choice, as they say, is yours. But this is God's promised king, which means we're wasting our lives if we're not following in this king. We're out of the joint of like what history's all about. And not only that, if he's your king, you can know that you are all set. Because your king is God's king. He's the one who saves, and you can trust him. He's humble. Sovereign king, God's promised king. We continue with our story, verse 11. Now we have this strange, surprising destination for the king. He entered into Jerusalem, verse 11. Now where do you want him to go, sort of, if you're an Israelite? I kind of wanted to read, he entered into Jerusalem, and he went to see Herod. I was like, what's up, Herod? New king in town. Or how do you like this? He went and he saw Pilate and he said, Rome, your time is up. He did not do either of those things. Where does he go? He went to the temple. Not only that, not only that like I said, it's a strange coronation. He's got all these crowds singing his praises. And he goes to the temple what happens to the crowd? They're not marching. There's no rioting. They just, they're gone. Jesus ends up going home with the 12 after at night. They stay with some friends in Bethany. It just fizzles. It's gone. What's, what's happening? Well, do you see he went in and looked at the temple? He'll come back in the morning. What's he doing at the temple? He's scoping it out. He's checking it out. And the attitude of it is, I want to see what y'all are doing with my temple. Well, this takes us to a really strange story, verses 12 to 14. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he's hungry, seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf. He went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. That seems strange, doesn't it? What's going on? Jesus seems to be angry at a tree because it didn't bear fruit at a time when it wasn't even supposed to bear fruit. This confuses people. I don't know if you've heard of uh, mathematician and philosopher Bertrand Russell. Anybody heard of Bertrand Ruff Russell? He's a, a famous atheist, and he wrote a piece called Why I Am Not a Christian. And Russell actually uses this text right here as part of his argument and and he he kind of exclaims how could be how could jesus be angry at this innocent tree and so if that's the way he is russell actually used this text to assert that jesus was unrighteous a man of flawed character well we can only wish that russell had kept reading 
because this story actually displays the very opposite. Let's keep working. By the way, when you don't understand a passage right at first, what should you do? Keep reading. Read it again. Read further. Understand context. Skip down for a moment to 19 to 21. When evening came, they went out of the city, and as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. First of all, whether you like it or not, if you're going to take the story seriously, Jesus speaks a word to this tree, and the next day, the thing is kindling for, for the fireplace. You may not like what he did, but he did it. It says something about who he is, but even more than that, I mean, I hope you notice, right? Something rather profound happens between these two accounts of the fig tree. Mark is using a literary device we call sandwiching. He's done this before. He does it a lot. He's very on purpose with how he's writing this. Sandwiching. So when you use that literary device, you, you tell the first start part of a story. Then you tell another story in the middle. And then you sandwich that middle story with the conclusion of the first part of the story. And so the parts at the end help you learn about the part in the middle. And the part in the middle help explains... The ends. It's actually a, a genius literary device to make a point. That's what Mark's doing. So you got the tree, the temple, and then the tree. So what does it mean? Well, first, a little context on fig trees. I don't know how many of you are experts on Palestinian fig trees. I am not. So this quote from commentator James Edwards helps me out. Edwards says, After the fig harvest from mid-August to October, the branches of fig trees sprout buds that remain undeveloped throughout the winter. These buds swell into small green knobs known in Hebrew as pagim in March-April, followed shortly by the sprouting of leaf buds on the same branches, usually in April, the fig tree thus produces these fig knots before it produces leaves. Once a fig tree is in leaf, one therefore expects to find branches loaded with pagim. So Mark is saying, yeah, we know it's not the main fig tree season in the fall. And the reason Mark is saying that is because it's the time of Passover in the spring. But that doesn't mean there's not something to eat on it. This is even referred to in Hosea chapter 9, verse 10. This is an interesting verse here. Like grapes in the wilderness, God says, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. Why is this notable? What are the people of God compared to? Fruit. The first fruit on a fig tree. Are you seeing a connection yet? And so Jesus comes up to this tree, it's, got, it's full of leaves, it looks great. What can you bet is on that thing? Well, those little pagim things you can pop in your mouth. And he gets there, look at all those leaves, it should be stuffed with those things, and yet he gets there, what's missing? There's no fruit. And what's wrong with a tree with lots of leaves and no fruit? The thing's rotten to the core. 
What does this sick tree represent? What did Jesus inspect the night before? The temple. And how does the temple look? This is Herod's temple. This is a wonder of the ancient world. It's amazing. It's enormous. It's packed. It's lucrative. There's lots of green leaves on this temple. What does Jesus want to see from his temple? Fruit. I want to see fruit. What does Jesus find in his temple? Corruption. Just like the tree. Jesus does something almost unimaginable. He walks into the temple and shuts it down. He shuts it down. He's what's in what's called the court of the Gentiles. This thing was massive. Open air area measuring 500 yards long by 325 yards wide. Packed with people. Enclosed by rows of columns. Josephus tells us 30 feet high and so wide it would take three people arms extended to get around them. Just this enormous, gorgeous structure. But what is Jesus supposed to find in the court of the Gentiles? In a healthy temple, what would you find? You would hope to find Gentiles worshiping God, hearing truth, confessing sin, praying, being forgiven. If you read the Old Testament, when King Solomon dedicated the first temple, he kept repeating, Oh God, when the people come to the temple and pray to you, Lord, hear and forgive. Lord, when people come and pray to you, Lord, hear and forgive. Because the temple is where you go to fellowship with God because at the temple, that's the only place the gap is bridged. Isn't it curious that seemingly every religion in the world has some idea of a temple? Because we all know there's a gap. We all know there's a gap. There's a God of some sort, and then there's me. And I just, I can't come to this God the way things are. I, I got to bring something. I got I to fix something. I got to do something because I'm wrong. I'm not God. I'm separated. And I can't bridge the gap. And of course, in the true temple, uh, we know that more clearly than anyone, the living God is holy and just. And you haven't loved him as you ought. And you haven't paid attention to his word. And you have not loved your neighbor as yourself. And I think your conscience will tell you, if you are honest, you're guilty. And there's a gap. You, you, you can't just come and fellowship with that God. You deserve his wrath. But God in his mercy provides the temple. Because there at the temple, sacrifices are made. Substitutes are offered. Something takes the wrath you deserve so that you can be forgiven and now fellowship with God. You can come and be close. You can come and talk. You can come and listen. You can enjoy the knowledge of your creator. That's what Jesus should find as he comes here to the court of the Gentiles. Instead, what does he find? The chaos of livestock and religious extortion. So here's what I mean. If you came to worship in the temple at this time, you would have to first exchange your money so that you could use the official temple currency. 
And of course, we might upcharge you just a little for that. And then you have to use your special temple money to get your temple-approved sacrifice. And we might upcharge you just a little bit for that, too. And who really cares about these Gentiles? We're going to put all the little shops for the lambs and the doves and the cows. We're just going to stick them right here. So imagine you do want to come worship God as a Gentile. First of all, you're going to get fleeced. All in the name of God. And second, you're going to have to watch out for all the cows and all that they leave behind as you try to find a corner to pray in. Israel is supposed to be a light to the nations. And instead of serving people, they are using people. And the pockets of the religious leaders are getting lined all in the name of temple worship. And you see how that makes Jesus feel. How does it make Jesus feel? Putting it mildly, he is very, very angry. He's very angry. So by the way, if one of your hesitations towards church is, man, it's just all the hypocrisy, I want you to know we feel your pain and we apologize. But I also want you to know your pain is not original to you. Who's the first person? Well, he's not the first, but who is a notable person who is outraged by hypocrisy, the love of money in the church? It's Jesus Christ. I just want to mention one more thing. Did he abandon his church because of hypocrisy? No, he died for them. Will we? But Jesus comes in here to this temple, and wouldn't you love to see the video on this? If only, if only, Jesus, who yesterday rode in on a colt, can you see the first one? I want it in slow motion. Grabs the table, you know, and the table's slow motion, and all the coins, and all the people's faces, and the, co- <laughs> and the cows start running. I mean, this is... This is nuts to imagine. And this place is huge. There's not, it's not just like there's one little stall in the corner. It's all through this area of acres. And he's just, woof. But, it, but it's not a temper tantrum because he stays there, the text tells us, and teaches. I mean, for one day, this temple explicitly is Jesus' temple. And he tosses this stuff around, and it says... He stopped people from carrying anything through the temple. You guys, the ancient historian Josephus says, at this time in Israel's history, during Passover, some 250,000 lambs would be sacrificed. That's an enormous number. That's an enormous amount of people. It's an enormous amount of priests. This is huge machine. And one man, no army, one man shuts it down and basically says, What are you doing with my temple? And no one can stop it. Jesus, our text says, quotes from two Old Testament passages. It's worth hearing them. I want you to hear what's in Jesus' mind. The first one is from Isaiah, and it shows you what the temple is supposed to be. 
The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it holds fast my covenant. Verse 7, these I will bring to my, what? Holy mountain, keep that in your pocket. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Who's welcome to come be joyful in the presence of God? Everybody. Just come, repent of your sin, believe, devote yourself to the Lord. You are welcome. It's a gift of grace. Everybody's welcome. All peoples, even Gentiles. But this is what happened. This is the second text Jesus quotes from Jeremiah 7. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Do you hear that question? Do we dare ask it of ourselves? How are you living every week? Do you dare go and do some of these things and then come back to church on Sunday and be like, Jesus, got to ask, right? Got to ask. God, want, God is expecting no one to be perfect. He is expecting his people to be genuine. He does not like blatant hypocrisy at all, and he sees it. You can fake me out. I can fake you out. We can't fake him out. He sees it. Look at the rest of this passage. Verse 11, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Verse 15, chilling, and I will cast you out of my sight. That's what Jesus is quoting right here. He quotes Isaiah. He quotes Jeremiah. How do you think the religious leaders are feeling as they see and listen to this? Wow. You know, as one commentator said, according to popular expectation, the Messiah was expected to purge Jerusalem and the temple of Gentiles when he came. And this commentator said, Jesus did not clear the temple of Gentiles, but for them. Wow. He makes a place for worship, for prayer, for forgiveness. And you can anticipate what happens. Verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Wow. Well, this conflict will define the rest of the week and it will end in Jesus' crucifixion. But back to our question, what do you learn about Jesus as king? Fig tree, temple, fig tree. What do you learn about Jesus as king? Contrary to Russell, Jesus is the righteous king. He's showing his righteousness. Look at his concern for the glory of God, for the good of the people. He fears no tyrants in power. He does what is right and true, no matter the cost, even as he stands alone. He's merciful to the needy. He upholds the scriptures. His word brings justice, and he's focused on what's most important, True worship of God and the knowledge of forgiveness. We need a righteous king. Here's the only one. Jesus. Sovereign king, promised king, righteous king. 
All right, on to our last point. On the way back the next morning, Peter notices the fig tree. It's dried up like it's been dead for a year, right? Verse 20, they passed by in the morning, saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And what does Jesus respond with? It's fascinating. Verse 22, Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. What are you supposed to do with that? So my interpretation of this passage is going to be a little different than most, I think. I'll leave you to test me by the scriptures, and you can ask questions after if you want. See what you think. First of all, let's note, obviously this passage is easy to misuse. So is Jesus telling them that they can all be little Yodas? You know, like, you can move the X-wing and the mountain, you know, by the force of your faith. There is no try or, or whatever. Just, just believe. Is that what Jesus is saying? Do you think that's what Mark means? Do you think that's what Jesus means? Or, or is Jesus becoming our vending machine, you know, where we just believe hard enough, you can grab whatever you want. There's famous, very rich preachers who actually teach something like this, right? Ooh, job promotion, A5. I believe. Is that what this is? You know, speak to your wallet, be filled, just believe. Oh, and by the way, send us a seed offering to prove your faith. And as we receive that check, we'll bless you and your account will grow larger. It's the same thing as the temple, isn't it? The corrupted temple. Is that what Jesus is saying? No, no. What is the mountain in Jesus' mind? I think a lot of people miss this. What is the mountain in Jesus' mind? If you say this mountain, throw it in the sea, it can be moved. Well, if we're reading it in context, do you remember when we read in Isaiah? How did God refer to the temple? My holy mountain. You go up to Jerusalem, to the temple. It's on, it's the temple mount. What did Jesus just shut down due to a lack of genuine worship, prayer, and the seeking of forgiveness? The temple. What does Jesus start talking about here as they see the tree withered up? Prayer? Forgiveness? Where now is the center for worship, prayer, forgiveness, and fellowship with God? It's not that corrupt temple anymore. That thing's going down from the Romans on AD 70, just as Jesus' word said, Jesus cursed the tree, it died. He pronounces judgment on the temple, it dies. Where do you go now to have the gap bridged? Where do you go now to have fellowship with God? Where now do you find a priest? Do you find a sacrifice? Where? That's why I say Jesus is the renewing king. He replaces the temple with himself. He has replaced the temple with himself. Read Hebrews, all those lambs, all those years, they didn't do anything but foreshadow the one real sacrifice. Who's the ultimate priest? Jesus. What's the ultimate sacrifice he offers? Himself. That bridges the gap. You repent of your sin and trust Jesus, and you can know 
that his life, his perfect life, is what makes you right with a holy God. God will look at you as if you never sinned and you always obeyed. You can look at Jesus and know that his death took your place and that in him you are completely and totally forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. You can know that as the one who, as, as he is the one who was raised from the dead, that he is God's king. He's the temple. The gap is bridged. And so Jesus is replacing the temple with himself and then also by extension with his apostles. Do you hear what he says to them? You throw this mountain into the sea. Pray. Believe. Well, well, say my theory's right. How did this work? Well, the temple got burnt down in AD 70. To my knowledge, it is still no longer there. And if it was, as far as this goes, who cares? But the church grew. The apostles preached the gospel. The temple is obsolete. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Jew and Gentile united by faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian, this is you. This is me. This is us together. Ephesians 2.19. So you're no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on what? The foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, by the way, that's a reference to Psalm 118, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a what? A holy temple in the Lord. We're the temple. All of God's people in the name of Jesus under the authority of apostles in his word. We're the temple. We are now priests and priestesses offering our lives in service to Jesus. And he calls us to pray, doesn't he? And pray audaciously. And pray that mountains will be moved. What does that mean? It doesn't mean I'm a, I'm a Jedi. It doesn't mean God's my vending machine. It means I pray big for impossible things like the growth of God's kingdom, like conversions, like justice, like holiness, like fighting sin, that, that we as a church would look like God's temple. That's impossible. In fact, some of you are here, and there were times when that seemed impossible, and people prayed for you. Mountains were moved as hearts are changed to love and trust Jesus. So in conclusions, we have shared some glimpses of Jesus as king, sovereign king, promised king, righteous king, renewing king. Is he your king? Is he my king? Are, are we like that first crowd, excited for a minute, ready to sing a couple songs? but not really following Jesus very seriously, fizzling out? Are we like that temple? We're religious, we're moral, good neighbors, go to church sometimes. Is there fruit? 
Do we love God's word? Do we care about knowing it, living it out? And these are the words of our king. Are we a part of that temple through faith in Christ? Have you found forgiveness and peace with God through trusting in Jesus and what he's done for you on the cross? Are you ready to forgive others? Are you eager to forgive others and offer the message of forgiveness to them? We are God's temple because we belong to Jesus who has replaced the temple. There's no one like Jesus, sovereign king, promised king, righteous king, renewing king. May there be fruit in our lives that shows that Jesus is our king. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we're amazed by you riding a donkey colt down the hill. We're amazed by you walking to the temple, taking it over. We're amazed by you being the priest, being the sacrifice who makes us right with God. Show us, Lord, that we can trust you as king. So I want to pray for those who do not know you yet as king, that today the Holy Spirit would be moving those mountains and they would be drawn to see how good and true and righteous you are. They'd repent of their own kingdom and bow their knee to you, trust you, and rejoice that they are forgiven and adopted as children of God. I pray that you would do that work today. And Lord, for those who do know you and claim you as king, Lord, help us to be all the more zealous to know you, to love you, to pray that you would do the, the seemingly impossible for your glory, um, to love your kingdom, to live in it, to, to honestly look like a temple of the Holy Spirit and what we love and what we think about and what we do and what we say. Lord, thank you for bringing us near. Thank you for bridging the gap, for earning our forgiveness, for giving us fellowship with God. We want to live in light of you as our king. Help us in that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.